Michael, what is the purpose of cinema? Well, looking at the history um, of cinema, or specifically the history of just screen in general, it's, I think you can, what it has essentially just come from is first, firstly started out as sort of like an illusion. You know, you'd get the, um, back in you know, the old days where you know, it was part of the circus you know, time when um, people would you know, like, you know, go into a tent and um, they would see, you know, um, what was um, the train um, that, you know, that shot? Um, what's yep. it called again? Uh, I forgot what it was. But, you know, that, um, that one where it just, you know, trains coming through and then people thought it was actually going to come through and like, you know, run them over and all that. So it was used as an illusion. But then, you know, what it was then pretty much, you know, transformed into, you know, this narrative form of storytelling, you know, it's telling narrative. And then you get like, you know, the great train robbery, um, you know, the story of the Kelly gang and all that, where it's able to communicate a story visually. And then from that, it's springboarded into this big business that we know we see going on in Hollywood. And so I think that, it has certainly evolved over time um, in terms of like what is the purpose of um, cinema, um, what it's utilized for. But I think generally just the all encapsulating idea is to essentially just reach out and take us through, I guess, sort of like a simulation of emotion. And whether that's, you know, to make you laugh or to, you know, put you into the mind of the character or to make you think about something or make you even, you know, or just generally feel something. I think that, like, it's used as, as, as I would say, an emotional simulation in order to experience these things that we pretty much may or may not experience in life. And But also at the same time, I think there are certain films that validate certain emotions i think um to say like on oh, no, it this is right or um to how should, I, how should i put this um just you know to make you sort of like if you had any doubts you know about you know certain things just sort of like ah oh, okay um to gain some perspective you know to think about like on oh, no, it this is how this person sees the world um, so I think that for I mean that's at the very least what I think it is. Um, I'd be very curious to see like you know how what you react to most, especially in, in terms of cinema and all that. It's funny you mention that because I feel like everyone has their own unique tastes um, to different types of stories oh, and, and different types of f- filmmaking styles as well. Mm. Um, but that's one of the big things I feel like is most interesting about the cinema experience is that. When you're going into a dark room and you're experiencing the same story as Mm. everyone else in that dark room and you're almost having a collective um, spiritual experience. I Mm. I like that way of um, explaining it. Like it is really like you all kind of go on this journey together Mm. and as a result you experience the story and it affects you in an emotional way that is sometimes really profound. And I feel like that's one of the great things of cinema is when you can go – into a dark room with a good sound system and a big screen and experience it with a crowd. Just having that profound, you know, movie going experience, Mm. I think is really, really cool. Oh my God. You just gave me goosebumps right there. Uh, (laughs) But no, no, I definitely agree. And that, and you know, that's always been like that. It's always been um, going um, to the cinema collectively, um, you know, from the beginning. um, Once I, you know, said about um, it, it being illusion and people, you know, paying money to go and, you know, see, you know, um, something up on the big screen that is not literally in front of them. It's always been like that. It's always been just collectively um, with a group of people going in, in a dark room, um, cut off from the rest of the world and being able to see something that they, you know, wouldn't normally see in um, day-to-day life. Well, the evolution of of cinema and the motion picture has 
you know, affected the whole sort of way we understand the world so drastically oh, because yeah. like obviously, you know, the first cinema going experience I think was like in 1895, I think in like France or somewhere. Yeah. Um, and then from that first experience and then we eventually got to the phase of color mm. and then sound, know, sound as mm. well. Like this, the evolution of just that one motion, obviously we used to have like silent films back in the day. Mm-hmm. So just seeing the evolution of using pure visual stimulus to Mm. entertain a crowd and then once you bring sound into it as well and then obviously as technology has evolved we bring visual effects on board Mm. and then even better sound design and and all that type of stuff 3d well 3d as well that was definitely a phase but that was still even very cool for the time oh yeah definitely and certain films definitely made use of it in very um cool and dramatic ways Mm. but it's just fantastic to see how technology has evolved over the last you know century or so well i think that's also something that I'd be very curious to see, hear your opinion on is um, when we're talking about like innovation in turn um, for cinema and yes I joke about 3D and all that but also at the same time I'm all for just any type of way that you can improve upon the cinema experience and I remember seeing um, a movie it was called Searching um, with uh, John Cho yes I just watched that recently yeah it's a really it, fun it, movie it's really good and it made me think because that it, I mean it wasn't really innovative because like telling a movie like on a computer you know had been you know done before with um, unfriended I think there was a couple of other ones as well but at the same time how can you do how can you create an intriguing narrative um, by doing something like that without it coming across as a gimmick. Well, you have like a narrative constraint where yeah. you can only tell a story through a very specific storytelling device. Exactly, and that's where I think. It, it really um, challenges a filmmaker to really try different ways or, and being creative in different mm. ways in order to try and make it work. And, mm. and like you said, not be a, a gimmick that people like, oh, it's like one of those movies. Yeah, exactly. And I think especially with um, how um, uh, the world, you know, the state of the world and what it's become in the past um, year, people have become a bit more savvy. And uh, there was that uh, one movie, I think it was uh, Sold to Shudder, which was Host. Did you um, hear about that? Um, I did not hear about that specific situation, but yeah. there's plenty of those yeah, examples, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's um, where they were able to pretty much just sort of like utilise that um, technology to create these very interesting, um, I, w- I mean, I wouldn't say um, innovative, but it's, not as common a film, you know, filming technique to just, you know, have it, you know, be told, you know, like on a webcam, you know, on a computer and all that. But in the ter- in terms of searching, it's sort of a weird idea to like go to the cinema and just like, and then you see a computer screen. Well, it's actually funny <laughs> that you say that because I would argue that searching is a film that is not best seen in a cinema. I would argue that that's probably a, a movie that would be better suited for a streaming service or a in-home experience because I watched that movie on my laptop. Yeah, I mean... And I felt yeah. like watching it on a laptop actually added to the experience because mm. I was like, I could totally see this happening like based off the layout and obviously the type of environment I was watching it in yeah. on my laptop. So that sort of idea of where a movie is seen I think is very important especially Mm. to uh, a lot of these studios where their distribution strategies and stuff that they're organising because the way I look at cinema like I think the purpose of cinema first and foremost is to entertain people Okay, and I think that's such a huge uh, key element that a lot of studios go out and and strive towards and then they fail miserably (laughs) but we also have a lot of good examples of movies that go out they have a goal of just trying to create a fun entertaining film and they succeed 
And whilst I think that entertainment is the most important element of the movie-going cinema experience, I also think that another key element of that is the technical uh, proficiency mm. and competence that is shown by the filmmakers um, in the way they create a product in order to create that entertaining experience. Yeah, well, I, I, to a certain extent, I do agree with you, but then you look at certain genres like, uh, say, comedy, where you can say... Sure, you know, sure. That's not sort of like the most flashy, you know, of genres and stuff like that. But if that, if that, if a movie is ma- able to make you laugh, you can pretty much excuse any other aspect of it. If it can make you laugh, if it's really funny, and that comes down to the actors. And it's not just sort of like it's not just technical pr- proficiency. It's just proficiency across the board. Well, exactly. And, and to jump on from that, uh, when I say uh, technical proficiency, I mean that in all phases of the filmmaking. Mm. So. With modern day filmmaking, I feel like it's interesting because the post-production phase, excluding visual effects, I feel like is always very proficient with a lot of these big blockbuster Hollywood type films. Sound design, you know, dialogue and and just general sound uh, effects and all that. I feel like for most movies is actually quite good. Mm. Um, It's only when the lower budget stuff that you can notice it's like, oh, that doesn't sound that good. But for the most part, movies always have really good sound design. the other things that I think is also really important is, like you mentioned, acting. That's obviously a huge thing. Mm. But writing, uh, the way you construct characters, so the characterization, how interesting, how engaging, how emotional um, their story is. Yeah. Obviously, story. Story is king. Story is always the most important part. And that, again, comes back into the script writing. And then, obviously, the filmmaking process of you know actually how the camera is used. Um, how the lighting is used. You know, I look at examples like Blade Runner 2049 mm-hmm. has oh, some of the movie. best cinematography I've ever seen because it makes such great use of lighting, the framing of the characters in order to communicate story. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1917 is also a great example of mm-hmm. that utilizing that trope of the long take in order to create that immersive feeling that really sucks you into the story and makes you feel like you're actually there experiencing it with the soldiers. So those ideas of using that technical aspects all across the board from pre-production in your um, development, your script writing, uh, all that type of stuff to the actual production um, in the actual making of the project with the various um, camera and sound techniques. And then obviously post-production where you have all the sound and, and, and cinema mixing, all that type of stuff as well, I think is all very important. Uh, visual effects is a, is a whole different beast though because I feel like yeah. visual effects – you can definitely get great visual effects when you have obviously the budget for it, but also the time for it. And I feel like a lot of movies, uh, movies, I heard this once, movies never get finished, they get released. Yeah, yeah. But also at the same time, also it's, it's not just visual effects that are limited to just um, stuff that's created by a computer. It's also about like, you know, in-camera effects and, you know, stuff like that. Um, or practical effects. Pra- no, pra- yeah, thing, you know, yeah. yeah, practical effects as well. Yeah. So, you know, you look at, I think the prime example obviously is Chris Nolan, um, where he just wants to get as much in-camera as possible because it just, it feels more genuine. It feels more real, it, you know, as opposed to, we, we, the, hu- the human eye can detect fakeness pretty well. Um, yeah, very well. Yeah, very well. And especially, um, you know, going back and looking at some old movies, um, I recently um, uh, went to the cinema um, recently and saw the, um, the original Tron. Oh, yeah. And um, for its time, because I believe it was one of the first movies to actually, like, put 
like um visual effects, you know, computer visual effects. Wasn't that I, one I, of the first movies that also did like the um facial uh, swapping or de aging or something? Um, no, I don't think it was de aging. I can't. I haven't seen it, but I, I just remember hearing something about that was one of the first movies that used a certain type of visual effects technology. Yeah, I, I'm not, I, I don't think it was de aging, but it certainly maybe like 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 matte paintings or something like that to place it onto somebody else. Okay, hey, I'm, not I, yeah, sure. I, I'm not too sure either, but um, I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of, um, you know, what is Paramount. Um, yes. I honestly think that, like, you know, people say, like, oh, you know, story is most important. I've got, I've got to say, like, it, it really depends on the needs on the type of movie you're going to make. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, this is interesting because this is why I brought you on because I know okay. you have, uh, I know you have such great uh, knowledge and, and understanding of the filmmaking process, and and I, I had a feeling that we might disagree on something. Mm. So I think this will be an interesting conversation. So. You say that you don't think story is the most important part. I'm interested to hear why. I mean, story is very important. It is very important when it needs to be. I think there are some films that you can say, like, this movie is not... What is the most engaging thing about this movie is not the story itself. Um, look, Godzilla vs. Kong is not an engaging story. Well, that's. I'm so glad you brought that up yes. because that was one of the examples I was just going to pinpoint to. Because yes. there are certain movies that are designed specifically for just balls-to-the-wall, crazy, fun action. And I think Godzilla vs. Kong is a great example of that, where it's just you want to see Kong and you want to see Godzilla just go at it and Mm -hmm. fight and just have that spectacle and that sort of fun action movie experience. And like you said, the story itself is kind of bare-bones and predictable, but you go to see that movie to watch Kong and Godzilla like throw down. Yeah, but also... Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with that. But also, you've got to think about, like, if if you don't go to see it for the story, then what story does there need to be, you know, there that's, you know, engaging and stuff like that. I believe that Adam Wingard knew exactly the type of film he was making. I agree. And he needed some semblance of a story in order to justify getting these, you know, these two big titans you know, to fight with each other. And he knew exactly what people would be going to see this movie for you're not going to go to see Godzilla versus Kong to see something on the level of Bergman you're not but at the same time I think that in the case of Godzilla versus Kong there are other ways I think that movie is proficient I do think that you see flourishes of Wingard's um um how should I, um, how his should style. I no, yeah, his style. Like, if you watch uh, his other movies, like The Guest, which is a fantastic movie, um, uh, his uh, use of neon colors um, um, with lighting, um, his um, camera work, uh, it's very on brand for him. And so it's just like he's not shackled by just like studio notes saying, like, oh, you need to, you know, do it, you know, this very mediocre way. No, he actually is wanting to do something that is visually up his alley. And so I think that. Um, for a lot of movies, I think a lot of them are exercises in uh, technical merit. Um, the one movie, um, so one of the movies that I go to, just you know, for example, of this is Michael Mann's Miami Vice, which is very. It's it's not a great story. It's not you know just you don't watch that movie for the story. You watch it because it is set in Miami, and you just want to see these cops just you know the I, th- I think the DEA. Um, it's the style. You can just put that movie on and it's, it can serve as just like 
I don't know, like screensaver footage because it's so beautiful. Um, the Nicolas Cage movie Mandy. Did you ever see that one? I haven't, but it's. I've heard it was good. Yeah. Yes, it, it's fantastic. And it's not because of the plot. And I joke about this. Going to see Mandy for the plot is like going to see Love Actually for the visual effects. Mm. In that it is very minimal and you just want to watch it simply because of the you know visual flourishes and um nicholas cage who actually gives a heartfelt perform um, well, i wouldn't say heartfelt but he certainly utilizes his cageisms you know to fit that character mm. so i do think that there are some movies that you do watch the movie for you know the narrative because you want to get sucked in emotionally but then there are other movies that you just want to watch into like oh my god this is beautiful mm. um and then there are some that like do crossover. An example um, of that you have just mentioned, uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I think that is a wholly narratively satisfying movie that is just gorgeous at the same time. And also, I I actually think it's better than the first Blade Runner, to be honest. I, and I, I know that I know that's a controversial no, opinion. No, I, I would agree. Yeah, I, I think it's it's one of the best movies that's been made in recent times. Yeah, yeah, I know. And just and I can acknowledge certain flaws it may have. I you know it is it a bit too long. Sure. Um, is it a bit slow in parts? Sure. But I think that's it's deliberate. It's deliberately slow, well, very streamlined. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And that's why one of the things I find interesting, and that's why art is subjective, right, got, is yes. that I would agree those moments that you've just criticised are, yes, deliberate. And I would you know agree that they have purpose behind them because it's trying to create this slow detective story. But at the same time, you know, when you get to that, final moments and, and you have that such uh, fulfilling satisfying narrative ending yeah. it's it, I think that it makes up for those little moments but again that's just my opinion yeah, some people might disagree yeah, yeah exactly oh, so a lot of people disagree mm -hmm. um, obviously like in terms of like look at the box office of it it was like it was not a hit it was not a hit but also at the same time you're making a sequel to a cult film exactly. there's a reason why it's a cult film but see well, that's one of those things even though it wasn't financially successful and that's ultimately all what the studio cares about i still think that movie will have a legacy um into the going into the future that will be very profound because i think like just you know Denis Villeneuve directed the hell out of that movie mm -hmm. Roger Deakins deserved the Oscar yeah. like that movie will go down in history as one of the best artistic expressions of um, this century yeah no I definitely agree with that and I do think that it will also be I mean one an another filmmaker that I think is fantastic is Denis Villeneuve um, even if um, at times um, I think that his films aren't for everybody, but for the people that they are for, they are very much all hail, you know, all hail to Denis, you know, um, as well, to, a filmmaker. Well, and to jump on from that, I think Christopher Nolan is in, is in a similar category. Yes. Of, some people have issues with Christopher Nolan. I've never really understood those criticisms. I understand them. I mean, he's my favorite living director, but I understand those criticisms. Well, I, I, there are certain things that I also critique him on, but like, I think he is undoubtedly probably the best working director in the industry currently um obviously there's so many great directors working at the mm -hmm. moment but i think christopher nolan what he does is so unique and so distinctly him and mm -hmm. i think he's created some of the best movies that's ever been made but one of the things i, I wanted to mention um based on what you said earlier is that um going to the movies and, and sometimes you don't go necessarily for the story mm -hmm. um, a lot of people do go and watch a movie whether it's at home or on the big screen for that sense of escapism yeah and i feel like a lot of movies do provide that we mentioned kong vs godzilla I, I feel like the fast and furious franchise may yeah. be like that as well but 
um, what I want to kind of push back on you with is that sort of sense of um, story not always being most important. Why I think it is still most important is because you can still have that sort of sense of escapism mm. and, and have these silly and uh, you know, quirky concepts. But when you tell a really good story that kind of combines both elements, I think that's when you have a fantastic movie-going experience. My example, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay. When you're taking those Marvel characters and, and that mythology, when you look at it, especially when you go back through some of the comics and, and, and just look at some of the outfits that these characters wear, it's so silly, so ridiculous. But somehow, you know, Kevin Feige and, and the creators at Marvel have found a way to make them contemporary, yeah. make them emotional, and actually find a way to make these characters um, – relevant for t for today in a way that makes people really engage both in the narrative and in the characters because they do such a great job of um, showcasing these characters and making them uh, really compelling for us to watch. And I use the MCU as that example of that combination of taking themselves seriously and, and creating a good story whilst also focusing on character, whilst also dealing with all these crazy concepts like wizards and aliens and and obviously super-powered individuals. So when I look at like examples like Kong and Godzilla and the Fast and Furious franchise and, and stuff like that, I say, yeah, they're fun. They're just movies that you go to watch to turn your brain off. And I understand that those movies have a role in the movie-going uh, industry. Mm. However, I think in order to raise the bar and create a movie-going experience that people will remember – and that is long-lasting, I think you need to take a page out of what Marvel has done and create a story that is really engaging and really compelling whilst also uh, focusing on character and still fleshing out all those uh, silly aspects in it as well. Yeah, well, I think that the, the reason for the MCU's success is because I look at it as it's essentially television because they've created what... 21, 22 films that have essentially... A lot yeah, of yeah, yeah, a lot of um, movies that have springboarded onto the next one. And I think that going forward uh, with the MCU, and it's going to be really interesting because they're now on television, is it really the Marvel Cinematic Universe? It's a great question, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that it's actually going to thrive on TV um, because also at the same time, we are living in a golden age um, of television, mm -hmm. um, especially, you know, segueing a little bit into streaming. Um with the, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe now coming onto um, television, you now have the hours um, to delve into these young characters and to have these storylines, you know, continue and to allow, you know, these, you know, um, you know fan favourite um, characters to have the spotlight and, you know, all this stuff. And I think that that's, that's what it's going to thrive in from what essentially the MCU essentially was like i said it was television because you're continuing you know this uh, um that interconnected it, it, yeah that line. interconnected um a story um of these characters where you don't really see an end in sight because the the mcu each individual film it sets up the next one we can all you know we pretty much all say that that's why you know post-credit scenes exist they intend on continuing it and at this part there is no sort of you know end date for the um the mcu right now um if you look at the James Bond films, each film is designed essentially to begin and end within this within the one film. It's not necessarily um, begging for a sequel, but that's why you know I gravitate towards more sort of like if we want to talk about like long form franchises that have existed over the years. That's why I kind of gravitate towards um, James Bond because those films essentially have created this formula that you can just place into a film 
and from beginning, middle, end, adhere to that and not have to worry about like, oh, what's going to come down four or five years, you know, later on. The MCU is, that's, and I guess also at the same time, the MCU has thrived on that. And I think the success, and you kind of already see that with um, another, um, the other show, The Mandalorian, people, lo- um, people love that show. Why are people engaging with The Mandalorian more than they are with um, uh, the Star Wars um, sequels? It's because it is you get more time with them. And I think that going forward, that's what's going to um, be thriving uh, for the um, MCU, even though it's probably going to be, you know, it's not really the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No, it's a good point. Yeah. But it's it's one of those things, and, and you mentioned streaming services. I feel like we live in such a, we live in uncharted territory right now. Mm. We're such in, uh, we're going through the world and the industry is changing so quickly and so rapidly. Streaming services are a recent phenomenon, like yeah. only in the last decade, really. Mm. And yet it has changed the industry. Some would argue for the better, some would argue for the worse in dramatic fashion. Um, there's so many examples now of movies that were designed for the big screen theater theat- you know, theatrical mm-hmm. release window, yeah. but are now going either straight to streaming services or they're having hybrid releases. Um, I know HBO Max yeah. is doing a thing where they're releasing movies um, on HBO Max and in theaters at the same time. Uh, Disney Plus has now just announced that Black Widow will be released in theaters and on Disney Plus for the additional fee at the same time. Which I think... Maybe I've no, no, I'm not sure about this, um, but I suspect there's a possibility that they may roll back on that, especially with how Godzilla vs. Kong is doing right now, because it's nearly, I think it's actually nearly grossed over $400 million. Yeah, it's done really well. It's done really well, and that's it's the first big example of, of people actually wanting to go back to the cinema to see something. Yes. So I think that, like, and I mean, kind of, you know, going um, into this point, and which I think you might have been, you know, leading there to. Do people still want to go to the cinema? Well, exactly right. See, and that's what I found most interesting, and, and you kind of hit the nail on the head there, is that people want to go back to the cinema. And I, I think that's really where this question comes down, is like, what is the future of the cinema-going experience? Because a lot of people tend to say, like, oh, the you know, cinema's going to go away, the, you know, they're past their time, streaming services are the future. But I completely disagree, because I think that the cinema-going experience is so unique, and it creates a certain type of feeling that... So that people definitely want to go out and watch. Like, you know, people have said for the last couple of years that, you know, you know movies are not going to be as successful on the big screen anymore because streaming services have come through and taken them out. But you look at recent examples, Avengers Endgame mm-hmm. is the highest grossing movie. Not anymore. Well, not Avatar, anymore. Yes. Not anymore. But, the, but from its release <laughs> to um, recently, yeah. it was the highest grossing film of all time. Yeah. And that was done through the cinema experience. Yeah. So this idea of like people don't go to the cinema anymore, I don't think is true because there's so many examples. Godzilla vs. Kong, a recent example coming after a pandemic where people, you know, are in certain countries and stuff don't have ready, act, like uh, easy access to mm-hmm. uh, theaters and stuff. You know, still this movie has been quite financially successful given the circumstances. And I think that is evidence to the cinema going experience still having a future, but... The question is, in what capacity and what is that future? Will it be as successful as what it used to be or will it be not as successful or or how will it change? Mm. I'm interested to hear your opinions on that. Yeah, well, I think that in terms of uh, streaming, I think with the introduction of it within the past 10 years and this question of like what is the future of uh, you know screen content going to be, I think that this what we're living in right now is really testing... Well, in, in a way, it was almost inevitable 
um, for us to you know finally be forced into a corner and to ask ourselves, okay, so what is the bigger like draw in for screen content, um, whether it's cinema or for streaming? And I, I mean, I like to think, and this is kind of like what I'm seeing right now. I think that what Warner Brothers did with HBO Max is a very interesting experiment, even though it has received some backlash. I think that what they're seeing right now is it's they are looking at the numbers of streaming and they're looking at the numbers of the um, of the box office. And in the case of Godzilla versus Kong, it really does depend on like what the audience, you know, like you, you know what format people want to see that movie in mm. but then you look at say like another small movie um i th- uh the little things with um denzel washington jad leto and um rami malik that was um release um that was given you know both um a streaming and um, a cinema release and i don't think it did well but I think it also explained that it also showed this is not the type of movie that people really want to go to see at the cinema. Mm. I, I'm not sure how it did in terms of streaming numbers, but I would, but, and, and that's why like it's, but also at the same time you look at um, some streaming services that only release numbers when it's just sort of like, it's actually like groundbreaking or it's just like, it's a milestone. So I kind of criticize streaming services for that only being very plain in the cards close to the chest in terms of, what they want to release with data and um, analytics. But I do think going forward, they will definitely, and we've already, we're already kind of seen it right now, wanting to see like only putting stuff out that is, like you said, designed for the cinema and then putting the smaller scale stuff onto streaming services. However, there have been some examples that I would say kind of push back against that. Um, I actually um, was very fortunate to see um, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma um, at um, um, at the cinema, and I would argue that that movie was that's as cinematic of a movie as anything you know anything else you know that was being released at the time. So the fact that only some people um, were well, majority of people only got to see that movie on a streaming service, does that utilize you know was that the right play? But also, you have to beg at the same time. If you look at that movie, you know, on, on you know, like at face value, it's a black and white movie set in Mexico with no no name, you know, no known actors, um, and you're putting that on a streaming service. It, yes, it's going to you know garner Oscars and all that, but also it's not going. But if you put it at the cinema, it's not going to draw in an audience, mm. unfortunately. Well, that's where I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. Is I think that's. When you ask that question of what is the future of the cinema-going experience, I think that's where the key distinction will be made. Yeah. Is, is this a movie that people will want to see on the big screen mm. versus would people prefer to see this in the comfort of their home on the small screen? I don't think it's actually going to come down to the audience. I think it's just going to come down to... Um, just basic numbers and analytics and no, stuff like that? No, no, no. I think it's going to come down to... the. Um, well, I, I think... Um, what the director intends, um, what the studio well, see, wants. It's I, funny you say it, it. I don't think that'll be the case because a lot of movies, like, because I think, and this is my opinion, I think all movies are best seen in the big on the big screen mm. in that cinema environment, right? Mm. But unfortunately, I don't think um, directors and a lot of key filmmakers will be allowed that opportunity to get their movies on the big screen because a lot of studios and producers just may not see the worth in it. So I agree that, yes, a lot of people would love to see their movies on the big screen, but when it comes, you know, at the end of the day, 
they might not get that opportunity because it might not be financially viable. Okay, well, look at um, Zack Snyder's Justice League. Well, yes, that's yeah, another good yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, with that in the case, it w- I bet your bottom dollar that that would not have been – they would not have thrown money at that if it weren't for the pandemic because – And also for HBO Max. And HBO Max um, because the reason behind that is who is – who is going to want to see a movie re-release? Uh, well, no, no, well, not just a four-hour movie, but a movie that didn't do so well at the box office was critically mixed um, to negative. I personally um, liked it, but um, it was, you know, it was got mixed reviews. Who would want to see that, you know, again? Obviously, there were people who were, you know, rallying behind that, who essentially hashtagged it into existence. Exactly, yeah. But I think that being able to, with HBO Max existing, um, it really sort of like gave way to it, you know, pretty much coming to existence. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it was um, uh, Warner Brothers who threw money at it or if it was. I think it was H- mainly HBO. Yeah, it was. I think it was mainly HBO because they needed, you know, to have a viable product. Yeah. And so they were able to do that and make that a thing. And that was due to audience demand. Well, it also adds to that fact of like because that is a, a movie with an extremely long runtime, it's designed in a way almost to be viewed in your home on the small screen because and and I'm glad you brought up Zack Snyder's Justice League because I use that and also Martin Scorsese's The Irishman as Mm. two examples of really long movies that are great and and like you know they both have a purpose behind them but you can't really see them getting through into the theatre experience based off their run times like I think The Irishman was three and a half hours People can't sit still for that long. So when you break it down and watch it in like small chunks, I personally watched it in three and a half hours in one sitting because I'm just a maniac. Um, but no, I know what, some people didn't. Actually, so. you want to hear something more, a bit more insane? I saw The Irishman at the cinema twice. Oh, really? Yes, I wow. did. Yes. And well, clearly you love the movie then, um, right? I, I, Yeah, I, well, I, I think I would say it was the first Scorsese movie I watched for the first time and actually loved just upright. There are some, wow, okay. um, there, there are some Scorsese movies where I've grown to love over time, mm-hmm. but this was the first one which is sort of like, I'm loving this. Wow. And I think that, yeah, when you look at The Irishman, I do not think that was a... That, there is a reason why The Irishman could not find a movie studio f- um, to get it financed. Because if you look look at it, it's... It's a couple of actors who are essentially... I don't want to say they're past their prime because we don't know about that yet, but they are coming to the end of their career. I would agree. Um, the last time we saw Robert De Niro and Al Pacino in the same movie, um, nobody even heard of it, and I, I'm pretty sure you've never heard of it. I think it was a movie called Righteous Kill. No. That was back in... released in 2008. And I remember, you know, the whole hoopla of, like, with Heat... Um, you know, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino in the same scene together. That was, you know, that was the whole driving force behind, you know, the excitement for that movie uh, directed by Michael Mann. But also at the same time, Martin Scorsese wants to, is going to make the movie that he wants to make. Mm-hmm. And that you can own with in the case of Martin Scorsese, either you're on his wavelength or he's not going to be partners with you. And that's not it's it's not sort of like, you know, clashing or anything. That is just business. That is the way that it's done. And so when he um, gets to somewhere like Netflix, I suspect the only reason why he took Netflix is because they were actually willing to finance it. I think that he's rather bitter. I think you bang on the money. Yeah, yeah, I I think he was bitter about that movie being put onto a streaming service. That's mainly where people are going to see it. But 
no other... Well, he's been pretty outspoken that he's not a big fan of the streaming services. N- no, um, I'm not sure. I don't know, well, I know about he- streaming. Well, I know Steven Spielberg has definitely been oh, de- outspoken. Uh, Spielberg has definitely. Spielberg has definitely, even though... Um, Actually, I think where I'm coming from, I think Mark says he was definitely outspoken against streaming services before The Irishman. Um, maybe yeah. since then he's maybe changed his tune. Yeah, because his new movie, uh, Kills of the Flower Moon, is actually going to be going to Apple. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, um, and that's going to have Robert De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio um, in it. And so, once again, I think that if you look at some filmmakers going forward, I just don't understand. Like, with Netflix, did you see recently that Netflix had bought the next two sequels to Knives Out? I did, yes. Yeah, like, how... And do you know how much it what they bought it for? Like $450 million. Yes. How? How? Well, how how would wh- what money do you have lying around? Because I I'm not sure if Netflix is like still in debt. Um, well, it's still they're in debt not. Or not. So it, it, only recently they, do they turn into profit land. So oh, yeah, okay. for the longest time, you're right. Netflix was in debt massively. Like they were in the hole big time. Yeah. But they were still able to stay afloat because they had enough money coming in from their subscribers mm. and they uh, investors could see the longevity of the product, yeah. especially Netflix because they they're, you know, spearheading this whole, you know, uh, rise of the streaming services. Mm. Um, but yes, only in the last I think beginning of this year they turned into profit land. Um, so now they probably have a bit more money to flex around. I know that this year especially they've like really flushed out a lot of um, big movies that are coming out, I think, like each month or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the Knives Out thing, that's that's interesting because those were movies that I would have preferred to see on a big screen because I really enjoyed the first Knives Out. Mm, yeah. I but too. again, I can understand it's a murder mystery. That genre isn't super, you know, it's not super popular anymore. Ryan Johnson kind of re- made the resurgence with it. I, so I don't know. Maybe that's a movie that people would prefer to see on the small screen. I, me, me as someone who really enjoys the cinema experience, maybe that's just me being selfish, but I don't know, maybe the majority is in favour of that kind of move. I, I, I don't know. What do you think? Um, in the case of Knives Out, I do understand um, why it would be picked up by a streaming service because, I mean... Because... Go, the, the, go back. I, 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 sorry. That's uh, all right. No, no. <laughs> um, I mean, what I'm wanting um, to say is that, like, you're saying, like, the murder mystery genre isn't that popular. Well, saying... There are a couple of murder mysteries we get every so often. We had uh, Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express. Yep. Um, he's got another one coming up, Death of the Nile. But I think that Ryan Johnson just looked at the landscape and he just said that, like, look, they are offering me to do two more sequels to this uh, for this amount. And compared to what the studios are willing to throw at me, they're willing to take, uh, they're willing to roll the dice on me. I might as well get, um, give it to Netflix. But also, at the, um, at the same time, I remember seeing Knives Out. I remember, spoilers, um, when uh, the Christopher Plummer character, when it's revealed, oh, no, he was the one who essentially killed himself. Sorry for a two-year-old <laughs> movie about that. Um, and I remember there were um, these guys who were sitting behind me um, literally said something something along the lines of, like, so, so yeah, I, I can just leave now because we know, you know, we know what happened. Um, you know, what's the rest of the movie going to be like um, if we know who, you know, essentially, ki- you know, killed him. I kind of love moments like that. Little moments where just like it's, it's not heckling the movie, but it's just sort of like, yeah, like why, why else am I going to watch this movie now if the thing that I've come to see is now been answered to me within the first 30 minutes. Mm. So... 
Well, Ryan Johnson did a good job of yeah. kind of mm, revolutionising the genre. And, and so I, I didn't mean to intercut you uh, before, but what I was just going to quickly add was that that first movie was still quite financially successful. Because so I don't, I never understood that idea of like the first one was successful. So why would he have that thought process? But then as you were explaining, I think you're probably right. Ryan Johnson was probably looking at the landscape and was like, I think this might be my best bet. Um, but but you also look at you know look at. Um the budget of the first movie, it wasn't that much. I think it was like up in like 40 or 50 million, I Wait, think. No, you're right. It wasn't that big. But yeah. the return on investment was still yeah, pretty oh, big. Yeah, exactly. And you look at the model of Blumhouse, um, where they're making movies for what? Like 5, 10 million? And look at Get Out. It it like made like huge amounts. L- of money. Ha- wait, how many times over its budget did it actually make? Like tw- like times twenty or times fifty or something, something like, like that. that yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So I think um, some of the people, and I, I also think in terms of like the arguments that people are making about like, you know, um, studios, you know, taking a um, taking a bath or like you know, ma- um, at a financial loss and all that. I think the one thing that it comes down to is they throw so much money at their films and you look at it and you go, where's, where's the money gone? I remember watching um, Dark Phoenix and I was thinking to myself, where, like, I, I think that movie cost $200 million and I could have swore that... <laughs> let's, let's not go into Dark yeah, no, no, Phoenix. I'm, I'm, no, 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 I'm, I, saying, I don't want to get no, depressed no, on that yeah, movie. No, I'm, no, no, look, in the case of Dark Phoenix, I, I'm not just talking about the story and just stuff like that. I'm just talking about like, visually like what they could have done with that movie it cost like 200 million dollars and i was looking at it and going like where's the money gone yeah like, like and and, I, and it I'm kind not, of I, felt mid to low budget to me yeah it did it, it could have been made for like i don't know 70 80 100 but it was but I, then i looked it up afterwards i swear just like okay it at, at most it's 150 it was 200 million dollars it just sort of like that's crazy that is that is crazy i mean i know it had reshoots and you know stuff like that but also it's just they are throwing of course they're going to ha- be at a loss because they are throwing so much money at these movies that j- they could have made you know for you know 10 million dollars look at you know compare the invisible man to the mummy mm. you know the invisible man you know was made you know on a shoestring budget um is very is very i think it's just very relevant to today um is creating i mean and it's not depending on a cinematic universe and look at what you know going forward they're wanting to make these sort of these modern tellings of these classical characters as opposed to the mummy where it was trying to copy the you know once again going back to the mcu formula but then you look at something like okay going back to godzilla versus kong it wasn't exactly the first film godzilla wasn't really screaming out for a cinematic universe um it just so godzilla uh, sorry warner brothers looked at it and just went, hey, we can make a cinematic universe out of this. You know, there is there is enough, you know, demand, you know, for this. And personally, I hope that they cross over with Pacific Rim. They probably won't. But I... That would be interesting. Yeah, that'd be so interesting. Just sort of like they're both legendary... Um, legendary picture productions. Like mm. legendary put, poured the money into both Pacific Rim and into um, the MonsterVerse. So it was just sort of like, surely that would have been a natural fit. But I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know either. But it's it's funny you mention all these sort of, you know, the budget is obviously a huge part of a, of a movie going, you know, production. But what I think is most interesting is how much money is obviously getting pumped into the streaming services yeah. and uh, the projects that are going there. And, and we've already talked about the future of the cinema experience. My question to you now is what do you think the future of the streaming services will be? Now that there's so many of them, 
like, oh, I guess I'll get the, the ball rolling. I think it's ironic that a couple of years ago, everyone was complaining, especially in America, how there was like so many cable networks and like you had to pay for all these different channels and stuff. And then streaming services came around. It's like, oh, that's going to kill cable TV. And mm. that basically did, right? But now there's so many streaming I services. Think, I, there's I, Netflix, I, Disney, Hulu, HBO. I think I know where you're going with this. There's so many of them. Yeah. It's almost made it obsolete. Like, and now if you want to pay for like the five or six streaming services that you want, it's going to cost you almost the same amount of money that it would be to have a cable network. Like, I guess the Australian example would be Foxtel, right? Yeah. Like, in order to pay for Foxtel, it's like, it's way too much money, right? But if you were going to pay for Foxtel versus having six or seven streaming services, mm. it might even still be like the same amount of money. So it's an interesting conversation of like, you know, yes, I understand there's so much great content being made out there, but what is the future of the streaming services when there's so many of them now? Well, I, th I thought you were going to be going to the point um, where it was announced the other day about Sony. Oh, well, yes. yes. Okay, yeah. uh, yeah, so you uh, want to expand and explain that? Yeah, yeah. so what, would ha what happened was essentially that um, Sony um, came to Netflix and said that, like, we, we're going to be making um, a deal. Um, we want to make a deal with you where that um, after um, the movie has been released, it, um, we will pay for every single one going forward to put our entire, I believe it's our entire catalog onto your streaming service. Um, and for movies like, say, uh, Morbius or Ghostbusters about, I don't know. The um, Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah, Spider yeah, yeah all, all those ones. I believe uh, going forward, um, I believe seven months after I think it has had its uh, cinema release that they will actually be, be put onto um, um, Netflix. I believe it's exclusively. And so essentially instead of so what essentially what Sony did was instead of saying, look, we are going to be um, we want to compete. We want to be in the, the streaming wars. Um, we're going to make our own. Um, stream service and they have um, you know a couple of their own sort of like back-end sort of um, stream services like um, Crunchyroll and Crackle um, that don't really sort of like that it's not a draw for anybody and it's just like free-to-air stuff what they're essentially doing is no we're going to be going to the big leagues we're going to be going to the one who's currently top dog top, yeah the top dog and saying we will make a deal with you to put that stuff onto your streaming ser um, service, you know, for you to buy the rights, you know, from us and we will get a piece of it. And so I think that's what's going to, I think the future in terms of business talk for streaming, I think that's what is going to be more seeing those big studios like Universe, well, Universe already has its streaming service with um, Peacock. Um, other streaming services, uh, other big studios are going to be going to the ones like Amazon Prime um, or, um, and all, all those big ones. And they're going to be going, okay, well, and we kind of already have seen it. We've seen a couple of, well, we've, be, we've been seeing it with individual movies, um, like uh, Trials Chicago 7 came to Netflix um, and essentially saved that movie. But I think going forward, they will be cutting um, deals with um, studios to put their movies onto their streaming services where it's, it's going to be exclusively streamed to their entire catalogue. Mm. And I think that's what's going to be um, happening, but it's not going to... But what's great about that is they're not going to... Shun, not shun, but cut out the um, you know going to the cinema because you will still have you know that um, mm. opportunity. I I honestly think that's the smart play. Well, going I, I think it, yeah, it's a good point because I think it's also 
a good move on their end because it's like instead of adding an extra streaming service that you have to pay for, they're just going to be making their money now through Netflix. Yeah. And I think it's probably going to be more – I mentioned this to you the other day. I think it's going to be more profitable for them long term. Oh, God, yes. I, I think so as well. And I think if we ask this – if we look at the future in about five years, I think the landscape – Oh, I I don't think it will go back to the way it used to be um, uh, pre-COVID. I think it will be different, and I don't mean just sort of like in terms of like what it is now, but in, um, essentially evolved. I think that is going to um, there are going to be different um, models that they're going to be following and different priorities, and I certainly think that we are sort of living through a shift in terms of the um, cinema industry. Um, at first, I thought to myself, and especially in response to um, what Warner Brothers was going to be doing, I I essentially thought that um, c- um, cinema was essentially going to become vinyl in that it's not going to go away, but it's going to become more of a niche market. Um, okay. Yep. Yeah, that, uh, that's, it's, that's what I thought it was. But I think with... Once again, going back to Godzilla versus Kong doing so well, I do think that they are re-examining the landscape and thinking to and going to be a bit more selective about what they're going to be willing to um, put out there. And I also think another um, another point because um, you, I, I think a couple of cinemas um, do this where um, if it's a movie but um, from Disney, um, the prices are actually for those movies. Um, it costs more to purchase a ticket for those movies than um, another studio, um, which I, me personally, I don't particularly like, but... Um, it is what it is. It, it is what it is, yeah. And, but you've also, you've got to look at also, you know, the price for a ticket. Um, I know a lot of people were criticising um, Milan um, about paying $30 um, to go um, see... Um, to pay um, the $30 fee upon the subscription to Disney Plus. I kind of understand it in that, like, look look at what Milan is marketed towards. It's um, w- the audience that it's wanting to get, which is essentially a fam- you know, family, you know, a family audience. And what what is that? That's, you know, a parent, you know, a, a parent or two um, with a child. So that's probably about three people. How much would that be at the cinema? That's probably going to be more, thirty bucks. Yeah, it's going to be about thirty bucks, and also you have the ability to pause it. You have the you know and go, you know go to the bathroom, not miss out on anything. Um, you can stop inside at any time you want, um, and it's in your room. I I, I understand why it's a thirty dollar fee, and, so and do I. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Um, but also, if Black Widow is going to be doing that, then it's ve- it's very interesting that you know they would you know allow you know for that. Um, I didn't see Ryan the Last Dragon on Disney Plus. I saw it at the cinema, and it cost me about like I don't know nine dollars. Mm. Um, so I think maybe that's what's going to maybe that's what's going to drive people to go back to the cinema. Just sort of like we either we could watch this once, pay pay the thirty dollar fee, watch this once on Disney Plus. Don't watch it again. We don't even know what the movie's like. Or we could pay a lower price at the cinema, watch it once, and go like. Yeah, and it's not for us. Or no, I actually like this, and then go and pay it on you know Disney Plus. Mm. Well, I think you you hit the nail on the head with regards to that's why it hits that thirty dollar price mark. Yeah, because 
the idea behind it is that you're not just paying for one person, you're mm. paying for numerous people because once you buy that film, it's available across all the um, accounts, right? Yeah. So I understand that obviously, you know, a price of a, a box office ticket admission would be, you know, around 10 to $15. Mm. You know, that eventually will equal up if you're going with multiple people to maybe around $30, depending on obviously who, how many people you're going with. Yeah. So I understand it and I think you hit all the right points. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how the distribution strategies change moving forward. Yeah. Whether it'll be um, cinema and hate, uh, cinema and streaming service at the same time, or whether it'll be cinema only, or cinema and streaming service with the additional fee, uh, or just streaming services straight up. So it's definitely uh, studios have now got a plethora of options. My personal opinion on it, and what I hope, I don't think it'll be the case, but I hope that movies get a cinema window where they're in cinemas for a certain amount of time and then they go to streaming services straight away after that. Yeah, well, I've also got to beg the question um, about um, physical media. Like Blu-rays and stuff? Yeah, I mean... Well, I collect Blu-rays and stuff, yeah, yeah. so I would appreciate that as well because I understand financially there's a whole different like strategy with regards to you have your box office window, yeah. then you have your DVD, Blu-ray, physical media yeah. window, and then you have your streaming window, and then you also have TV broadcast windows as well. So in movies make money's money in lots of different ways. So I think that's also a big dilemma that these studios are having is how they're going to make the most amount of money from these different windows, uh, especially when streaming is now the forefront. Yeah, but I also got to think, like this baffles me, and I could be wrong on this, but like I remember when... Something about like Disney saying like going forward they're not going to be invested in doing like like with physical media or something like that. Then why are they putting out like so many 4K titles? Like Milan is available in 4K. Um, I think it's just for those people that are in that market. I think, like you mentioned about the the vinyl and stuff, I think it's just for those people that are within that very niche market. So I think it's good that they still cater to them, but I I think we could both agree that they probably won't invest as much money in that area in order to pump out as many Blu-rays and 4K copies. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. But it, it just was very interesting to see that, like, you know, going to JB Hi-Fi. Oh, they've got the entire, like, you know, Pixar collection in 4K in this big box on sale, even though they have said, like, no, our sole focus is going, you know, to streaming and, you know, putting, you know, stuff out there. And yet they're still putting out, you know, physical, you know, media and just sort of like, you know, okay. Like, it just makes me question, like, you know, where your priorities are at and... Yeah. Well, at I, the end of the day, they're just trying to make as much money as possible. Yeah, right? they're trying to squeeze out, you know, just a little bit more. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, I still, you know, buy, you know, um, physical media um, as well. Um, I think that it just looks, you know, s- s- looks so much better, especially in 4K. I really love that satisfying. As soon as you put the disc in, it just sucks it in, just, mm. and then you get to play and. And lastly, also the good thing about that is you get all those like behind the scenes and, and gag reels and all the extra stuff that is also fun to watch as well. Yeah, which I think Disney Plus does that really well because they have those extra you know bonus stuff on there, which I think is definitely a draw. I'm glad. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, I really you know appreciate that. And also, um, I mean, going forward, I only I think within the past, I don't know. 10 months I think I finally switched over to 4k and I'm not going back um but I I think going forward I do think that um 4k especially on streaming services um I think need to improve um on that with the content that they well not not the content that they create but when they 
get like, I don't know, um, I know that um, Blade Runner 2049 is in 4K um, on Netflix, but that's because like Sony is so invested in like the 4K medium, but then you have other um, studios um, that don't, you know, have that. And if you go in, I think the best um, streaming service um, in terms of like put, um, putting out 4K content is Stan. Um, if you like, if you go on there, they have like the Bourne, you know, um, franchise in 4K. The James the, Bond ones, right? The James, well. Yeah, all the James Bond films are in 4K. Uh, the Jurassic films are in 4K. I Stan is fantastic with that stuff. Um, and there are films that like aren't even in 4K on physical media, like Steve Jobs. Well, I love that movie, and that's in 4K now on Stan. That that's. I can't even find that anywhere else, like even to purchase online. It's just sort of like invest more in that like i would like to see you know more of that because yeah it's I, I i just i just fell in love with you know 4k especially recently um but yeah um yeah going for going forward i do think that um there is certainly going to be i think there's going to have to be a reinvestment in cinema because there's certainly it's certainly taken you know a dip um, we, are saying we are essentially living in a depression right now for, in terms of cinema. It's certainly going to be a reevaluation, um, but it's also, I think, going to be a reinvestment. I'm cautiously optimistic. So am I. Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, but I do think that streaming does have its place. And I do think that streaming um, opens up certain avenues in terms of things that you can't really do at the cinema, I think. Um, there was that... Um, Black Mirror Bandersnatch um, thing. Great example. Where, yeah, um, which I th- I which I think does kind of fall under the gimmick because it's just sort of like I would classify a gimmick as sort of like something that you check out, you fiddle around with it, and then you don't really come back to it. Bandersnatch kind of fell under that. Um, it's just sort of like, okay, yeah, this is cool. I but, love Ben Snatch. It was so much fun. Yeah, just it, yeah, it was fun. But and you know, trying to figure out just like all the different alternatives and all that, and you kind of you know loop back around to things. Yeah, it was cool. But just sort of like for me, and you kind of need to look at the audience to go like, okay, how long are they you know spending on this and you know stuff like that. But are they going to? like have that test that out in different shows I believe it um, didn't Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt actually do that as well I'm not sure yeah I'm not not too sure either I think they were going to be doing that I'm sort of like like pick the different punchline to the joke or something like that um, which is kind of cool but I I do think that streaming will be able to actually open up avenues uh, for different types of storytelling that cinema won't I, I'm yeah, on the exact too. same page as you. Yeah. And, and the whole foundation of this conversation today has been about the cinema experience. And, and I'm going to ask you now, what do you think are some of the pros and cons of going to a cinema nowadays? Um, obviously, there's a few obvious ones. Obviously, one of the pros would be, you know, watching a movie on the big screen. Some of the cons may be like, you know, there's annoying people in the back seat sort of thing. But yeah. I'm interested to hear from you. What do you think are some of the pros and cons of the cinema going experience as of today. Okay, well, I'll start off with the cons first. Um, I just think that people, I, I think there's a lack of etiquette that like is being drawn attention to. I think that um, for me, if, if somebody is still on their phone or is still talking as soon as the movie studio logo comes on, I'm already out of it. Um, I th- and I think that a lot of people are confusing the etiquette of 
well, it's not even etiquette at home. Like people like are treating going to the cinema almost like watching a movie at home. I, I yes, I agree. I think and there's I some overlaps. It. Yeah, I, I I hate it as well because there is some decor. There is some, as I said, etiquette that you abide by. There is a there is a social contract an unwritten. Well, like, not sure if it's unwritten, but there is a social contract that is essentially created when you go to the cinema. In the same way, there is things that you do and don't do when going out in public. You are in public. You are among the people. You are you know, like it's a communal experience. You're not at you know you're not at home. So when you go to the cinema, just because it goes down and everything is black, does not mean you are cut off from the people who are next to you. I th- I think that there needs to be a bit more of an emphasis on theatre etiquette um, going forward. Um, um, what, what else? Um, I think some there are certainly some upkeep in terms of. Um, how cinemas are kept clean and all that. Um, I 100% agree. I give lots of criticism to certain theatres because they don't do that. Um, they have sticky seats or sticky floors and all the seats are not comfortable at all. I'm on the same page. I think there needs to be a better upkeep with yeah. the facilities. Yeah, and I, and I mean, you could argue also just sort of like they only have a certain amount of time between sort don't of... Don't care. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that, that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, there's only a certain amount of time between like when the last movie ends and then the next movie, you know, begins with people walking in and all that. It's no. not a complicated job. Get cleaners in, clean, in and out, and then next person comes uh, in. Yeah, and, and even if there is a problem, you know, with that... Put them through a training course or something like that. You know, it that you know they that they can attend. You know, in order to you know um, get it you know cleaner and stuff like that because it is part of you know it is part of their job. You know, to clean up and you know may as well do an adequate job. You know of it. So yeah, I, I that's definitely you know one of them. Um, I think that, and also, and something else that we haven't really touched upon is, um, especially for a lot of filmmakers who um, prefer film over digital and stuff like that, I think that, um, and I guess it kind of falls with, um, under, um, in terms of like presentation for um, TV as well. I really love um, g- like going to um, say like Gilmore or going to you know, Palace Cinema and they're actually showing it in film. Um, there is, and maybe it's nostalgia talk. I don't know, but I do think that there is something so fascinating about like the different presentations um, of a movie at mm. the cinema. Um, I think it'd be nice if more theaters had that option. Mm. It, it's just one of those sad realities that I feel like because cinemas have been struggling a lot recently, mm. that we don't get more of that. But I think, especially a lot of, if a lot more of the mainstream theaters had that extra option, whether maybe it's just one cinema that, like, one of their specific uh, cinemas that does it. I think that would still be cool, but because like I think as of right now, a lot of the mainstream ones just have their normal dis- default yeah, big screen digital, experience, yeah. and then you have very niche specific theaters that only do stuff like that. that that's what I was so, going to say. Yeah, I think that it has become very niche. You know, like wh- like here in Brisbane, where do you go? You know, to see you know to see you know film projection you know on celluloid at Palace Cinema at Goma. You know, at the very it's it's there. I can't. I can't think. I think the only um, theatre in the country, I think, that actually has um, that event cinemas actually has a uh, film projector. I believe is uh, George Street in Sydney. Wow. Yeah, and I th- because I think they did like that roadshow thing that Tarantino did with the Hateful Eight, um, shown it in I think it was seventy mil. 
um, they actually showed it um, at George Street um, back when they were doing that roadshow thing. I think it was like the only location in Australia that actually did that. Um, so, I mean, that's for me. I know a lot of people don't give a shit about, um, uh, you know, how a film is projected, um, but it is a very small it's a very small thing that does make a big impact in terms of like how you present the film because look, you can, for some people, you can present a film just in any way and they'll be fine or, but then you get to like, you know, say like if it's bad sound or anything like that, people get up in arms and if it sounds drowned out or anything like that. Yeah. So definitely. Well, I'll jump in here. I think the movie going experience needs to be of the highest quality because I agree with when you go to a theater and you have an uncomfortable seat or the screen has like a mark on it or there's a bit of, you know grime on stuff on the screen yeah. or there's a speaker that's not working properly it all takes you out of the movie going experience and yeah. one of the most important things of when you're watching a movie or a TV show or any type of um, screen story is that once you're watching it and if the story is good you get immersed within it you get immersed within the world you are enjoying the characters because you're going on the journey with them and it's almost like a magical spell you almost get hypnotized in a way you kind of get sucked in into it and when you in a, are in a theater and someone kicks the back of your seat or they're on their phone and that light comes up and it, and it just snaps you out of it even if it's like a very brief moment yeah it, those little moments can d really detract from that movie going experience so yeah. i agree i think mm. the etiquette needs to definitely improve from a lot of people because i have noticed that when i went and saw wonder woman 1984 mm. there was a woman on her phone for basically like 75 percent of that movie mm. and even worse she was having her camera open she was recording parts of the movie oh, and i'm no. like what the fuck are you doing i'm like why you're just distracting me because she was right in front of me right and also like, you're committing a crime like well, exactly right I, again i don't know what the purposes of that recording was but regardless it, you shouldn't be doing that anyway yeah um, so that was annoying. And also, I agree. I think etiquette from the people within that experience, like you said, I think it's an unspoken rule, but just come on, people. I think it's fair enough um, because when you're in that movie-going experience, you just want to get immersed in the story and yeah. kind of get – and enjoy it for what it is. You don't want to be thinking about the people behind you or, you know, like being in a seat that's uncomfortable, all that type of stuff. Mm. Um, and I also agree that, you know, there are certain things when you're watching a movie that you need to be like, we're watching a movie right now. Mm. We're not at home – having a conversation yeah because i've been there's been i've had many times when you know we're watching a movie on the big screen and then there'll be someone behind me giving a commentary or having a chat with their friends i'm yeah. like come on man but i'm you, just trying to watch this movie and it, well it, it, it depends on the type of movie i remember going to see the meg which is not a good movie but i had the best time watching it with my friends and just it wasn't heckling the movie, but it was just sort of like, yes, they're about to do that stupid thing, well, and I so love okay. it. Okay, let me make a key distinction then, because I, I agree, because there's nothing wrong with reacting to a movie yeah. and, and having a natural, um, loud emotion towards it, whether it be laughter or or cringe or or, or, or you know horror or whatever it is, um, and, and then making sometimes those satirical um, heckling type moments. That's all fine. It's just when it's irrelevant or not related to the movie going experience, so like. You know, for example, uh, when I went and saw Jurassic World, yeah. um, there was a bunch of high schoolers behind me and, you know, they're just talking about like high school shit during, during the movie. And I'm like, come on, dudes. I'm just like, I'm trying to watch this movie and you're distracting me. I didn't enjoy that Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, but that's a whole different story. Did you, have you seen, uh, have you ever gone to the cinema to see The Room? I haven't. Well, I, I watched it just down at um, at Griffith in the QC on the big screen there. That was the very first time I watched it. Go so. go to. I think they're doing it at New Farm. Um, like every like 
every once every, on a Friday of the ninth, I think it is, like oh, every okay. single month. Go do that. It is. I've been twice. Oh. It is so much fun. I can imagine because that is a bloody strange movie. Yeah, it's it, a strange, it, it has earned yeah. the title of the best worst movie ever made. But but I, I mean I'm saying that simply because like that is a different etiquette altogether. Because once I agree. yeah, because in regards to that, like everybody knows what you can and can't do during that. Mm. Um, you know, you can throw spoons at it. You can provide commentary. You, you know, you can you know get up climb you know all over the season. You know stuff like that. We all know that is an agreed-upon thing during that movie because it's a cult film. Of course. But in case of, like, that movie over there, Avengers Endgame, I, like, during that, you know, big third act, I'm just going to say the word portals. Yes. Um, in case you have not seen, you know, the second highest-grossing movie of all time, um, I wanted to just get stand up out of my seat and just, just cheer and give everyone a high five. Hundred percent. Yes, because of like 100%. yeah. But any other movie that's like that, I appreciate that they have that enthusiasm. Well, it's it's funny you mention that, and I think that's a very key point. And, and I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm making myself quite clear is that I, I don't expect people to come into a movie and just be silent the whole time and, oh, no. and not react. There are certain movies that elicit that key emotion out of you. you Avengers Endgame yeah. is a great example of mm-hmm. that because you know. <laughs> This is a whole separate debate that we won't get into just now, but Mars mm. says he liked to compare the Marvel movies to like theme parks and stuff. Yeah. And a lot of people took offense to that, but I think he's dead right. I think the I Marvel enjoy movies, theme park rides. Exactly. I think the Marvel movies do such a great job of getting a collective community to get together and eliciting a response from them because Avengers Endgame and even Infinity War with the moment with Thor, like those moments in Endgame, the portals moment, mm-hmm. and when Captain America lists Milner, like there are there, there are those key moments that make the fans go absolutely wild inside mm-hmm. the theater, and you get those crazy responses where people are screaming, just that raw excitement yeah. and emotion, and those type of reactions are awesome. I know when I saw Avengers Endgame um, at you know the very premiere experience, I was the exact yeah. same. I had mm. tears of joy, tears of sadness, yeah. and I was fist pumping in the air. Yeah. So it's stuff like that I agree. When a movie elicits a key emotion out of you that's earned, 100% worth it. It's just in the all those moments that are not relevant to the movie that I get take issue with. I know also that's an external reaction. I think there are a lot of movies that I give you an internal reaction that gets you into a state of mind. An example of this that I always go to is a movie that I'm not even big on. I'm, I'm actually not the biggest fan of this movie. Um, I remember, um, and it was actually um, a movie that I saw twice at the cinema, and I actually got a, like more of a reaction out of it the second time I saw it, simply because I was in a state of mind at the time. Um, the Revenant. Um, the first time I saw it, I was just sort of like, not for me. I, I, I don't understand why I didn't. But I remember seeing it the second time. I think it was like a day or two after, um, you know, won all its Oscars. And I was like, I was in a dump emotionally. Um, and then I decided, you know what? I'm going to go see The Revenant um, again. Um, it was like 8.30 at night. It was raining. It was cold. And then when I saw that movie, I described it as sort of being akin to like slipping into a warm bath. And I was almost paralyzed with sort of like, if a movie can make me feel what it's trying to, like what it's showing. What it's simulating. Yeah, what's simulating, then I know it's done a good job as that, even though, once again, I actually 
think that the movie is a snooze fest. I think it's repetitive in places. But I think the one thing that that movie does a really good job at is, like you said, simulating what it's what it's showing um, on the screen. And I think I always say this: if a movie can make you feel taste, if you can taste something. Um, one of um, a great film um, maker of this is uh, Luca Guadagnino, um, who directed Call Me By Your Name and Suspiria and A Bigger Splash. Call Me By Your Name is so great because its majority of it is set in like summer Italy, and you can feel the heat of Italy. You can, and then it, when it cuts to like um, um, winter, you can feel the coldness of that season. It's a very seasonal movie. And when they're sitting at the table and they're drinking juice and they're, you know, eating stuff like that, you can just like, you can taste the flavors of all the things that they're eating and all that. I think if a movie can appeal to all the senses that we have, then I think that um, movie has done a fantastic job. Even if say you're not invested in the story or ones you certainly don't enjoy you can still admire it because it has given you that reaction that's not negative that makes you just want to punch a hole through the screen Mm. so yeah when a movie's you know does that that's when i know just sort of like yeah you know they've done a pretty good job with that well i think we're mixing different things here but like with both positives and and like the pros and cons Mm. um some of the pros like what's a specific con uh, sorry what's a specific pro that you would give to the cinema going experience even though we already have touched on a few um i mean it's like, what's that one key um, pro for the cinema experience that you're like, I, if when I go to the theatre, I always expect this, and if I get it, I'm super satisfied? I mean, just show me something I haven't seen before or something that just sort of, like, is very much akin to sort of, like, give me something that I didn't know I needed. Um, I, this wasn't at the cinema, but I imagine if I did see it at the cinema, um, I would have just been... Um, just like this is my jam um i've recently watched the french connection and i thought to myself like if i saw this at the cinema i my i would my mind would be blown because this once again going back to like a sensation i know what winter in new york feels like i have been to new york twice and i felt like i was back there in new york with them just like standing outside in the cold just waiting you know with a coat and just stuff like that but also the chasings and knowing afterwards they didn't really have permits um for some of the um the chasings in um in that movie and it's just like and i was thinking to myself how did they do this when a movie makes me think to myself how did they achieve this i just go like yeah that's you know that that's you know pretty special to me like me knowing like how did they achieve that shot it's just like yeah, that, that's the stuff that I really go sort of like, you know, pretty bonkers over. Yeah, I had that recurring question many times throughout watching 1917 on the big screen. I'm actually... Such a masterpiece for, this, for the theatre-going experience. Oh, you don't want to hear my opinion on 1917. Well, I know, yeah, you're not too keen on it. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> um, one of my big pros for the cinema experience is obviously you mentioned it, the story and, and being able to give you that emotion of like, I've not seen this before, this is profound. But to me, another big thing that I really love about the theatre going experience is obviously the big screen, but also the sound system. Yeah. When you're in a good uh, theatre that has a great sound system um, and you just kind of get immersed within the world mm. that it's you know showcasing. And even little things like you know when the movie logos at the start come up, some studios are really creative with the way they kind of set the tone for the movie mm. that you're about to watch through the credits at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of the best example, I would say the best example of this is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Okay. Um, 
where the opening uh, logos and stuff that they set up, it's so um, graphic and it's so um, disorientating the way it shows the logos because it's like um, going between the different filters of like the comic booky feel versus like the live action feel. Like uh, you've seen it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you know that opening sequence, right, with the logos, it's yeah. very disorientating. The music is obviously really loud and it does that in order to kind of like get your brain in the right mindset for it to be like you're watching a very specific type of animation mm. that really helps you kind of get ready for it because it, that movie animation wise is brilliant it's one of the best animated movies ever made i think but i think that opening sequence with those intros really sets the stage for the movie you're about to watch and again that's a great obviously of course thanks to the animation but also mm. the sound design and i remember watching that on the big screen for the first time and just being like wow this is awesome just like getting that getting into that feeling and then when they have that thumping noise of you know approved by the comics association yeah. just so cool yeah and stuff like that i think is really awesome when you can make use of the cinema mixing and that cinema feel and just have these sounds going all the way, especially like when helicopters fly mm -hmm. over you or, or something's happening behind you in a horror movie that gives you that extra fear. Just you stuff like that is just amazing. You often think it's just sort of like, oh, there's actually somebody like who's actually there. You know, it's just sort of like, oh, there's something going up there. No, it's actually part of the sound system. But um, I'm only going to... I'm going to. I'm not sure if I should say I'm going to slightly push back on this. Um, of First time I saw into the Spider-Verse, um, and and it's interesting that you actually mentioned just that, you know, the um, the logo and stuff like that. That was actually the point where I was just sort of like, okay, what what am I in for? Because admittedly at the time, um, you know, I was exhausted with work. It was like 8.30 at night. But I actually thought to myself, like, this is kind of an assault on the senses. Okay. Yeah, because it's just sort of well, like... That, I think it's deliberately so, No, no, though. no, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's deliberately. I agree with that. But for me, it was just sort of like, this is like, this is really loud. And there comes a point where it's just sort of like, yes, it's loud, but like, don't like, just don't make my eardrums burst, you know? And that's like one of those movies where I was just sort of like, this is really loud. Can someone turn this down? The last time that happened to me... Um, I think it was Tenet um, when I, and funnily enough, I saw a um, film um, the first time I saw it, I was just sort of like, this is really loud. And I'm not just talking about, talking about like, you know, like the dialogue's muffled and stuff like that, which it is. Yes. But um, it's just sort of like, can they turn it down a notch a bit? Because it's just sort of like, when it, when it becomes an irritant, that's when I just go like, uh, it's just like when it's pushing back yeah. against me and also like it, the problem I had with Into the Spider-Verse the first time I saw it was it, it same pro problem that I kind of have with the Lego movies is just sort of like it is so frenetic in pace and style it's just sort of like uh, my retinas are going to burn it's just sort of like there's just so much going on and not being able to keep up with it and all that that's sort of like me, me personally I don't always gravitate towards animation when it's done right once again going back if it's able to make me feel um, inside out I cry every single time while when I watch that movie and I love that movie but then you get some other movies where it's just sort of like yeah yeah it's you know fine and I'm talking specifically with animation so into the Spider-Verse was one of those ones where it just sort of like, I think it took me like another viewing for me to, and I didn't, I watched it, you know, the second time at home and it was just like, okay, I get it. I get it. By, it's it's yeah. funny you mention that. And this is again, why I love movies is mm. because art is subjective and everyone interprets things differently. What I really loved about that movie, that frenetic style, mm. you dislike. And I think that's what's so good about 
you know, art in that way is that way is that how it affects people differently. Yeah. And obviously it's great when there's a consensus one way or the other, when everyone loves something or sometimes when everyone hates something that can kind of be fun as well. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what makes the movie going experience so entertaining yeah. is because everyone's coming together to have this collective experience with a community and because we want to enjoy a story as a collective and I think that's one of the best things that the cinema going experience really does is it provides that sense of community and when you're telling a really great story mm -hmm. that has great characters that can really draw you in and whether it's an educational movie that kind of says something about um, a specific topic or something or whether it's a movie that you know shares um, something social or political or sometimes cultural um, a movies you know that try and share a um or try and change uh, something within society that try and make a movement. Stuff yeah. like that is sometimes interesting. But at the end of the day, I think movies are always trying to um, provide a sense of escapism for people. And mm. I think uh, the entertainment factor is obviously a key factor. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, as long as the movie is of high quality from a technical perspective and then it has great characters and a good story, I think then that's a, a great recipe for success. I just thought of this, like... Do you ever get that sensation while you're watching a movie that, like, yes, you are, it is a community experience, but, like, you feel this sense of togetherness? Yes. Do you, like, you feel just sort of, like, because there are times where just, like, you feel like an individual at the cinema and stuff like that, but when you feel, like, when people are laughing or something like that, yes. or um, you just feel like you're just, you're all, you know, in the, you know, you're all in this, you know, and yeah. I think that's, I mean, I guess you could have that, you know, at home when you're like, you know, you have friends or family over to watch, you know, movie and all that. I remember when I um, invited all my friends to, um, to come over and watch um, the new Borat movie and it was just sort of like, I don't think I would have enjoyed that much if I just watched it by myself. But to watch it with strangers, like this is like the thing that like, we, look, we the only thing that we have, like when you go to cinema, the only thing that we're having, we have in common is that we're about to watch, you know, the same thing and we're like, we're, we're facing the same way. That's literally, you know, the only thing that, you know, we have in common at that we know of. But the ones, but what we're going to be doing is bonding over the enjoyment of, or it depends, you know, how you react to the movie. It's, it's almost a test on just sort of like, you know, I'll be going to band together and we're just going to be enraptured, you know, in this movie. And, and yeah, and MCU movies, that you know, they do that. They certainly do that. I was to say, I've had plenty of those experiences oh, yeah. of interacting with a crowd, all collectively watching the same thing and, and we all respond the same way, whether it's laughter or, or sadness or whatnot. And I think the best movies elicit those emotions out of you. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I think most movies, you know, have a little flaw here or there. But at the end of the day, if you can leave the theatre saying, I had a bloody good time, mm -hmm. money well spent, that's what you want. Yeah. But also outside of the cinema as well, um, I remember, like, I think the prime, just top, um, prime example of this is um, just remember the lead up to The Force Awakens. Just remember that. One of the best hype experiences. Yeah. Even Avengers Endgame. Like, I think those two especially. But can I ask you something? Do you, do you think that the hype is bigger than the movie itself? In what way do you mean? means by that, like, there is so much build up to a movie that it's almost overshadowed sort of, like, the reaction to the movie, just sort of like the hype. It like when people say it lives up to the hype, I always think to myself, like I try not to hype up too much because it's just sort of like, shouldn't I be more excited about something after I've seen it? 
because it depends. Yeah, it, it, it it's very specific to the type of movie and maybe the franchise. Because mm. I would agree with you that the build up to the Force Awakens was one of the most explosive pop culture moments because it was yeah. the first time we were getting a Star Wars movie since Revenge of the Sith. Ten years. Star yeah. Wars was dead after Revenge of the Sith. Yes, we had Clone Wars and stuff like that, but you know we weren't going to get any more Star Wars from George Lucas. So when Disney came through to. Uh, Star Wars is a whole separate issue because everyone has different different opinions about yeah. Star Wars yeah. since Disney took over, which is a whole separate conversation. But I think we can all agree the build-up to The Force Awakens was something special. Yeah. And Avengers Endgame, you mentioned, lives up to the hype. I think that was a movie that was so hyped, but somehow they, they over-delivered even still. Yeah, exactly. And I try not to sort of like look at it. Like when I go into a movie, I just try to wipe my expectations, you know, on a clean slate and just sort of like judge it on regardless, you know, of my expectations. And sometimes I fall into that trap, you know, like my emotions dictate that. But I think that um, I try to have the mindset of just sort of like going um, well, not clean, but my have my emotions clean of sort of like my with my expectations. And then like I walk away going like, Am I going to recommend this to people? Am I going to, you know, revisit this? Is this going to, you know, uh, am, am I going to be jazzed, you know, about this? There are some movies that I, you know, just come out going like I would walk, like if they have another showing of this, I'll walk back into it. Um, an example of this was Mad Max Fury Road. I just walked out of it going like, look, if they were like, if I was able to walk into another showing of this right now, I would go into it because to and to me, that's a sign of like, this movie existing as opposed to the you know the made up movie that I have in my mind, I would rather something that you know exists that I, I can enjoy as opposed to just sort of like oh think about oh what could have been, and so with the with the hype I think a majority of that hype is stimulated by people creating a movie inside their mind and you know setting up a whole list of you know boxes that are you know that are either ticked or left unchecked when well, going to the yeah. cinema and i think avengers endgame was one of those where i would say that like for majority of people majority of those um boxes were ticked mm -hmm. yeah no i agree with that yeah and i i agree with you i think when you're coming into a movie and like i said i think it's specific to the, the type of movie in the franchise but as long as you're having realistic expectations for the product itself and you're also speculating responsibly. I think, yeah, that's yeah. The, they're the two main things coming into that movie. That, yeah, so. yeah, that needs to be a phrase that actually it should become mainstream. Speculate responsibly. Speculate responsibly. It's just sort of like I don't, I don't care about your theory about you know I don't care about your Snoke theories. I don't care how you would have rewritten season eight of Game of Thrones differently. I don't care. Look at what we have gotten. Yes, you didn't like it, but guess what? That's what we you know essentially have given and that and I mean briefly going back to Zack Snyder's um, Justice League he that that he was very fortunate to actually be able to get his vision out there and from just like an artist's perspective not a lot of people get that chance and so being able to re you know rewrite you know your own history and being able to go back rewrite and, your legacy yeah rewrite your legacy yeah I, I, I think that's um you know, that's very rare and very fortunate you know, for some artists, but at, also at the same time, just sort of like for some people, y yes, you may be disappointed and you have every right to, but also I, I actually try, as much as I am passionate about films, I always say to myself, look, no movie ever deserved to exist. No movie needed to exist. It's very fortunate that, you know, that we are actually, you know, 
we're able to see that type of magic created, but it's entertainment. It's not essential to life. Um, I think storytelling is, but you know, you have certain ways of doing that. And it just so happens that like my favorite form of storytelling is film. So um, I think that like, I'm not too precious. Um, this is just me, you know, talking, I'm not too precious about like, look, I think season eight Game of Thrones, I think it was a solid ending. I honestly did. I think it, you know, just, it, it needed the way that it, you know, needed to. Um, Rise of Skywalker, same thing. I think that, you know, it, it had a solid landing. Um, would I have done things differently? Sure, but I'm not the filmmaker. So I'm, and I guess I'm just talking about like, you know, in terms of like fans and, you know, people, you know, having about those, you know, expectations. I think we need to be trained a bit more in terms of like, not setting yourself up for disappointment, not overblowing it, because think of all the amount of times, like, what are the, like, think of the ratio to, like, compare where it lived up to the hype and when it didn't. I think it might tip in, you know, the disappointing category because of you just... expectations. Yeah, of your expectations because you just psych yourself up um, over what, you know, you know, a, you know, a talking, you know, a talking carpet, you know, walking carpet, um, people, you know, playing, you know, dress up that's that's what you're you know that's what you're psyching yourself up over it's make-believe and so i'm not too precious about it but i do get passionate you know about it because it is something that i am interested in but you also got to take a step back every so often and go like yeah what what we're you know excited for you know space wizards and laser swords you know it's ridiculous it is ridiculous but you know i love ridiculous exactly and i think that's one of the most important parts is you know when we all go into an experience on the same page you know expecting something and sometimes getting something different but as long as we go in with the right mindset i think that's what's most important and yeah uh, i think i agree with a lot of what you said and i think this has actually been a really productive conversation and i really uh, am thankful for you coming in and, sure. and sharing your thoughts um Final thoughts from you on this topic of what is the purpose of cinema? Do you have any final thoughts? Um, I mean, I kind of spewed it all out to you, man. But um, yeah, um, I'm I'm still waiting um, for the day. I mean, I guess we kind of already had it with Godzilla versus Kong, but I'm very looking forward to seeing. I, I also, in terms of like um cinema, I think that, and in terms of hype, actually, um, I was wanting to make this point. Um, my most anticipated film for this year, funnily enough, is actually No Time to Die. That movie, the reason why that seeing that movie is important to me, and this is just individually to me, the last time there was a Bond movie, I was just about to graduate from high school. A couple of years later, next Bond movie is, has, um, is about to come out. I'm just about to graduate from university. The la and I'm a big fan of the fan of the Bond franchise, but between the time that there was a Bond movie to now, I have become an entirely different person. Mm. And it just feels like and also I've I've grown up with Daniel Craig as my Bond. I remember seeing Casino Royale when I was I think I was eight or nine at the cinema. I, I actually got to see it at the cinema and he, so he has been Bond for majority of my life in the same way that like Hugh Jackman was Wolverine for the majority of people's lives and then people, you know, crying about Logan. The idea that I'm going to sit down and see Daniel Craig for the last time as James Bond is just like, I'm not sure how I'm going to handle myself emotionally. Um, a friend of mine um, told me that, like, he was crying for the last 30 minutes of The Rise of Skywalker, not because it was bad, um, but because he, it, like, the idea settled in saying that 
this is the last time I'm going to see these characters. This is the last time I'm going to... This is the last instalment in the um, the Skywalker saga. And so I think that, like, that's what I think me- it means to a lot of people. It's not just sort of what goes on in, um, in terms of what goes on inside the movies, but also outside as well. I think that, like, when you draw those patterns, it's just sort of like, holy shit, you know, I've just gone... I've been through so much since, like, that last movie came out or and stuff like that. Now I get to see it with, you know, a different perspective. I get to react to all these things, you know, differently now, interpret it. And so I think that, like, it all comes down to if what's important, especially just in, with movies in general, it's be your own individual in how you react to it. I think that, like, you know, just weigh up what your interests and tastes are and just have those in check and whether it ticks off all the boxes, you know, or not, it all depends up to you. And, I mean, I'm... Once again, I'm I'm going to be going into No Time to Die with, you know, I try to, you know, have tempered expectations, but I know that I'm just going to be, you know, just... I'm not sure how I'm going to handle myself emotionally, just knowing that I'm going to sit down and, you know, watching the, watching it, you know, for the first time and knowing, holy shit, this is the last time I'm going to see Daniel Craig as James Bond. Don't underestimate your emotion towards certain things, I think. Um, but not because of, like, how precious you are about the characters, but just, you know, how they have, you know, played a role, you know, how they have been there for you your entire life or, you know, and, and just things like that. And I think that's pretty, you know, important and think it, you know, makes us, you know, build character and just think of the world, you know, a bit more wholly... Um, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but <laughs> but do you understand what I'm yeah, saying? I think I'm going to be going down on a tangent on this, but yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I think what you've just said to kind of wrap up this podcast is very powerful. And yeah. I'm on the same page and I, I agree. The, the movie going experience is something special. Yeah. And it, it's why I love movies and, you know, why so many people around the world, you know, celebrate this type of stuff is because it, it, it can affect you emotionally in very profound ways. Can you give me goosebumps again? <laughs> my final thoughts on this conversation are that there, there have been very key moments within the cinema industry over the last century. And I, I, I think there you can kind of pinpoint those moments in history. A lot of them are recent. I think Jaws, I have that post up deliberately, 1975, ah. uh, correct? Uh, uh, I believe so, yeah, yeah. That movie came out and it revolutionized the way um, the cinema experience was because of the amount of box office box office it had yeah. 1977 Star Wars came out yes completely changed the landscape with the way filmmaking was done both mm-hmm. technically and the way it was consumed um, especially within pop culture pop mm-hmm. culture has changed because of Star Wars I think another huge pivotal moment within the cinema landscape was when Avatar came out in 2010. Uh, yes, I was thinking that, yeah. That, that played a huge role in the way visual effects were conceived, but also that was the boom of the 3D um, experience. I'd also say Lord of the Rings. Because Lord of the Rings, Yeah, of look at the creation of um, Golem by Andy Serkis. They were like every, motion capture, Yeah, motion course. capture, yeah. I think you know, that you know, certainly did that. 
Yeah. Yep. And then I think the most two most recent ones is of course 2015 when Star Wars: The Force Awakens came out. That's probably one that will go down as one of the most hyped uh, cinema going experiences and uh, one of the best moments in pop culture because mm. regardless of what you think of The Force Awakens, that moment of the Star Wars fandom going into that movie to see the Star Wars fanfare again, mm. there'll never be a feeling like it. And of course, the most recent example, arguably the best, I would say the best, be personally because yeah. I'm biased, Avengers Endgame. I was wondering why I had that poster up there. <laughs> Again, that poster's up there as well. One of It, it is my favourite movie-going experience, and the, I have never experienced anything like it where I've been satisfied so wholly because I've... I had I got exactly what I wanted, but I also got things I never knew I wanted. Yeah. And just the experience was something I'll never forget. And it was one of it is the most profound movie going experience I've ever had. And again, that's just great down to, you know, filmmakers who are doing the best job that they can in order to create a product for fans to enjoy. It's their jobs after all. Exactly. And I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, pros and cons with the film industry, but at the end of the day, you know, we as fans go to the cinema to have that experience of watching something that's really entertaining. And I think there's lots of great examples out there. There's also lots of examples of shit out there. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. That's all part of the experience. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's what's most fun about going to the cinema. Even the shit ones, I think, have their place in the same way that, you know... The best ones great, do. Yeah, best ones do. It's just sort of like what not to do, mm. what not to do. So, um, no, I definitely agree with that. But... Um, yeah, it all comes down for me. It just all comes down to taste and just sort of like no. It's like being in touch with just like knowing what you enjoy. What what are you looking for? And just sort of like you know when you when you just suspect you're watching something like this, is my jam. You know, I think that like that's the moment where I'm just sort of like yeah, this is this is my you know this is all this is all mine. These emotions, what I'm experiencing right now, it's all me. It's all it's what I'm experiencing. This is my, and and it's all comes down to, it's. You, every single person has a unique experience, even if it's a bit similar to other people. It's your own experience. That's what makes it unique to you. So I think that like something like Avengers Endgame is definitely, some, it's it, there's no other feeling like it. There's, exactly. Yeah. So I definitely agree with that. Michael, thank you very much for coming on. Fist bump. Thank I really you. appreciate it. This has been an awesome conversation. I, I loved every second of it, and yeah. I think you've added a lot of interesting little tidbits, and, and I think, yeah, the conversation's been very productive. So thank you very, very much for coming on uh, to the podcast. I really, really appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me, Caleb. It's great. That's all for to, for today's episode. Thank you very much for watching wherever you are around the world, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, if you could, share the podcast around. That's the way we grow. And uh, I would really appreciate if you did hit that like button if you are on YouTube. And, of course, make sure you are subscribed and following the podcast links uh, wherever you are listening or watching around the world. Uh, thank you very much for watching, and I will see you in another time.